what's up and welcome back to nostalgia pod giving you another week of what's going on in pop culture my name is pat sheen joined as always by my trusty dua leap 11 co-host dave martin swagger dave how you doing man let's get physical baby how's it going <laughs> dude uh we got we got a couple things to talk about today no music this week other than the the dua concert you made it to which i'm extremely jealous about um a couple of tv shows a couple of movies so some good stuff. Hit that subscribe button if you're on youtube.com slash nostalgia pod and also go to Spotify and give us a five star rating. Nostalgia. Um, Dave, but before we get into do, I just uh, want to bring something to your attention and get your, your thoughts. Catching you off guard here a little bit. The uh, the Oscars, they're doing a most like popular movie where the fans can vote for it. Right. And uh, it started off where uh, Zack Snyder's The Justice League got an early lead. And then No Way Home was was in the mix. But now the clear number one favorite with uh, a little over like a, a week and a half to go. Cinderella, the Camille Caballo movie, is the clear number one. I mean, what is happening? You know, I'm not surprised to see this kind of abuse uh, for, <laughs> for Cinderella. Obviously, there's a lot of enthusiasm for uh, Snyder Cut and Spider-Man. But it's just a a stupid call man it's a really stupid call like you want the oscars to be about what the academy thinks not what the fucking people think it's not the mtv music awards it's a really stupid idea you know and we've talked about adding categories as ways to improve the oscars moving forward that is what i still believe is the way to uh make things even better this is this is not it and you're gonna get what you deserve with this kind of thing yeah it's uh they're they're really just getting what they deserve and it's going to be hilarious when a, a movie that was panned by pretty much everybody who saw it is going to be uh the most popular movie of the year according to the, the stupid vote <sighs> the oscars just, will be very happy with this <laughs> the oscars just can never figure it out they just really can't get out of their own way with this sort of thing anyways dave tell me about this dua lipa concert you went to you sent me some videos and it looked fucking awesome dude yeah, so I saw the uh, sixth show on the Dua Lipa Future Nostalgia Tour in Boston, uh, a tour that's been a long time coming, a tour announced in December 2019, before the album was even out, before the pandemic, of course, and I was definitely very excited uh, to see this. I waited in the Ticketmaster line last fall to get in, to, to have the ability to go, and really, it's just... Uh, uh, of a way for me to finally actually see do in person after thinking about seeing her in 2017 and ultimately not going at a small venue show, of course, um, still kicking myself about that as a, you know, relatively early adopter of Dua Lipa as far as Americans go. So to finally get a chance to see her uh, with, you know, so much, so much hype, so much excitement. And I mean, just think about like, it's been two years since that album. And she sustained herself for that full two years, basically levitating. It was her 2021, but the song was that big for that long. It's pretty crazy. crazy. So finally at the tour, at last, the arena tour. And it was really good. And I think there's a lot of uh, I mean, key like notes about why it was good. I think just overall, the long layoff with this, this was a very rehearsed, very choreographed show. And you could tell. Like, it was just very professional, very well done. Um, 
like you know, like many, many outfit changes, a very a strict set list. It seems like all the shows uh, so far have been more or less following the exact same set list, but everything seemed very uh, intentional. And I, I, I appreciated that, but also just like Dua Lipa's uh, presence as a performer has notably uh, improved over the years, especially as a live performer. You know, she got a lot of flack early on for not being much of a dancer. And it's not like she's like Chris Brown now, but she's definitely a lot better uh, at dancing than she used to be. It goes a long way. Uh, I think they use the backup dancer, background dancers in a lot of cool ways during this show. There's a moment when they're on like uh, rollerblades. Um, they, they change their outfits as well. A lot of cool stuff. I mean, heck, starting it off, you get like this 1980s aerobics video with neon colors introducing all the backup dancers by name and giving them like fake, like, you know, like movie names and stuff. I thought that was a, a cool way to, to start it off. But I mean, 90 minutes of Dua Lipa, that's just a lot of fucking banger songs, dude. She does like 20 songs and she has that many good songs already. It's uh, it, it was a blast. And the crowd I was there with was really into it, like knowing just about every word. And you could just tell how much energy was uh, in the building. It was it was a great time. Yeah, I've seen uh, seen some videos. I sent you a TikTok of someone who was like front front row at a recent to a concert, and uh, she just seems like an absolutely magnetic performer. Which, like you said, come a long way from where her stage presence used to be. And yeah, I mean, just the videos you sent, the the set design, stage production, like choreography, just seems like a full blown pop star show. And I think that just, you know, further solidifies something we've talked about on the show, which is just, she is really like in line with like Madonna and like those pop stars, maybe not to like the same dancing level as those people, but certainly like in terms of talent and star level, she's, she's rising right up there. Yeah. I think there there was a cool uh, moment towards the middle of the show where they kind of did like a nod to the club future nostalgia remix album from, uh, you know, last year that we talked about YouTube concept nostalgia pod, and from that you got her famous songs, you know, One Kiss and Electricity, those collabs, and then she goes into Hallucinate off Future Nostalgia, and just like yeah, this whole like club moment where all the fucking bass, all all her EDM joints, all in a row, just fucking bumping. Uh, there's a little kid behind me questionable that these parents brought like their two four-year-olds there but the little kid was having a blast okay just dancing <laughs> around right behind me uh to hallucinate pretty funny but uh i think the one note like one like quibble i have here is that she doesn't actually perform uh i don't give a fuck i i d g a f off uh the first album that, that is a song with a billion streams on spotify a huge hit for her she doesn't actually perform that song it's just used like as like an interlude like you hear some of the audio for like half the track while she's doing like an outfit change. Hmm. I, I like, I like that song a lot. I think everyone likes that song a lot. We probably could have lost like um, that collab she has with the French singer that she played like later. And like, I don't know if we needed that. I'd rather hear like one of her like classics for the most part though. It's mainly the future nostalgia songs. So yeah. it's a, uh, it's specific. Um, when I, when I saw her, I didn't have, we didn't have the levitating, on like the, the platform i guess that's probably venue dependent but the the set list you see on wikipedia was the set list i had so it seems like she's more or less following a pretty strict uh strict you know planned show which is cool because again the rehearsals are our evident she was this super 
committed the whole time. It was it was a blast. Give me your two or three favorite moments from the whole thing. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, yeah, it starts out physical, goes right into new rules. Place it explodes for that. Um, I think like maybe right right after new rules, or maybe track song four. She does love again, which is one of my favorite like non singles off future nostalgia that was great um again just because like the crowd is super into it you know um that was awesome the, the, everything with the club songs was 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 great like a lot of cool stuff with the lighting at that time um yeah then i mean like the end the ending such a such a banger too you like you know the ending come back coming back out encore like all that like uh going from cold heart to Alan john joint that's like really big right now yeah into uh levitating then future nostalgia title track then don't start now like those are the four final joints like it was i mean that's a solid final four <laughs> yeah you can't beat that you know <laughs> god damn <laughs> oh man Not, my, my fomo uh is at an all-time high right now very jealous you got to see her i know you also have a arena concert coming up in a few months so i'm excited to hear uh how that goes for you but uh, we'll, we'll be talking about all the concerts we go to. Actually, I'm, I'm going to go see Elton John at the uh, Barclays Center in two weeks. So mm-hmm. looking forward to uh, checking out the old head. Wait, what What arena concert do I have coming up? Aren't you going to go see Rena? Rena. Oh, yeah. That's, that's not Rena, though. That's not no, no. Arena. I said Arena concert oh, coming up. Duh. Yes. <laughs> but not at an arena. She's keeping now, it yeah, small. I right? actually still need to get tickets to Rena Sawayama because that shit has been sold out for like year and a half already and i also need to get tickets to charlie xcx small venue show which i waited in line at Ticketmaster and got fucked by Ticketmaster, and now yeah. i have to pay like three times the costs but i'm gonna do it like after seeing do a leap i was like you know what i gotta go see charlie i you gotta go do it be cheap i gotta <laughs> do this so uh stay tuned for for, for talk about that when, when when those come up all right well why don't we move on to some tv now and we're gonna start with netflix for a couple of shows here venting anna the uh is this the first no it's not the first shonda rhymes um right so this one so this is the second shondaland netflix show following bridgerton however shonda rhymes herself didn't actually create bridgerton she did create inventing anna so depends on your uh distinction there um yeah it's actually the first show shonda rhymes has made herself since scandal so it's been been a long time she also didn't directly create how to get away with murder as well but obviously shonda rhymes one of the most prolific uh television creators of the last 20 years of course starting it all off with gray's anatomy which is still on tv and uh we'll leave it at that <laughs> but uh, a, a lot a lot was made of uh you know her signing a huge netflix overall deal in 2017 followed closely by you know ryan murphy and kenny barris and in general these big overall deals from amazon netflix whoever it is seem to be like a big thing for television creators to lock people up right like even even like netflix they're like let's get the duffer brothers keep them in house you know following stranger things it's happening to everyone but it's been it's been a minute for shonda rhimes to actually make something definitely not the ryan murphy uh tact right ryan murphy i'm gonna make a lot of shit you're probably not gonna like any of it though shonda rhimes (laughs) takes her time Finally, her company makes Bridgerton after like three years into the deal. And Bridgerton is the most successful show on Netflix at the time of its release. Uh, so, yeah, it worked out, right? So this is the second oh, yeah. show. Second show. 
and uh yeah <laughs> it's not a it's not gonna be as popular as bridgerton that goes without saying but it's also just uh kind of perplexing for the mistakes that we have in this which is a, a shame because of the source material the, the real life adaptation of this anna delvey story should have been made for a better miniseries than it ended up doing here at netflix so ultimately just kind of a big disappointment yeah and you know um the premise feels ripe for a, a good miniseries based on the new york times uh article yeah, uh, new york how, magazine sorry yeah new york magazine correct how anna delvey tricked new york's party people um that's from a few years back actually right. and uh it follows the story of anna sorkin who like the article kind of says kind of just like tricks her way into the life of these socialites in new york city um and you know looking at the cast you think there's some people in here that i think we we like or at least feel like are in in a good position uh for you know like a star rise julia gardner i think is probably the the person people know most from ozarks um anna uh, chlumsky from beep uh, as the headliner here so or uh, sorry not the headliner but um one of the the Mm co-stars uh you know looking down the list you have people like laverne cox um anders holm so like some decently big name people with this but it sounds like you were lukewarm on it yeah totally and it's actually really funny too so the the person the journalist who wrote the story the Anna, anna story in new york uh jessica pressler she also write, wrote the Hustlers at Scores, the story that became the movie Hustlers. It's really funny to see someone have multiple like banger magazine articles like yeah. in a short amount of time. But th- the fatal flaw with inventing Anna is that uh, the journalist is the main character. Anna is not, and we're just kind of bogged down in like the the how how the how we're gonna tell the story of Anna. Uh, to to the public and we're not spending enough time watching Anna like lie and cheat and mislead all these people the flashbacks are very intermittent even though this is a bloated uh, series with like super long episodes and everything like it just I I feel like we just waste so much time and and the 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 perspective that that we're given is, is isn't isn't compelling and it also kind of like takes a like a side of like trying to like paint Anna in like a more nebulous light, perhaps positive light, when in reality she is just this scammer hustler figure that took advantage of people. If anything, I would have rather seen the show explain or lampoon how all these like elite New York social life people got duped by some total fraud. Like that would have been compelling as well, but it it never really commits to any any of these lanes, and it's just uh, kind of dull. And on top of that, you have Garner again, Emmy winner, well liked person on the rise for sure. The performance from Julia Garner is very up and down. I think a big part of that is the accent that she has to do for this character, which is not far off from the real life accent, but the accent's like super grating and weird. It's like a Russian German hybrid. Uh, when 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 Anna has like meltdowns or gets mad and stuff, it's just like really grating. This is nothing about the show is as fun as you wish it would be, given the the source material, and a lot of the stuff with the journalist character is kind of 
tropey ground that we've gone down before with all kinds of stories. So I just, it, it's kind of a, a perplexing like miss from someone like Shonda Rhimes who really knows like TV convention and how to make things compelling. So I've found it really just, just, just disappointing. Cause like, we're going to get so many shows this year about like real life people and real life, like drama and stuff. You got to make it fun or compelling in some yeah. way. And just inventing Anna doesn't, doesn't, doesn't do it well enough. Ah. I feel like, like we've had that problem with other shows recently. None that are coming to mind, but it just feels like a familiar, like critique where it's like, ah, they didn't really go in any one direction. They kind of just tried to play it all the way down the middle and it just didn't yeah. really work out. And you know, it's it's funny because Shonda Rhimes, I think, at least in some of her other shows, has had the ability to make things that are, you know, at least captivating and fun, um, if not, you know, uh, actually really good. And, you know, I'd say like probably the early seasons of Grey's Anatomy, people would really ride for as really good yeah, television awesome. shows. Uh, the more recent seasons, like you said, we'll, we'll refrain from comment at this time. But, you know, Days of Our Lives is still on the air, too. So, like, right. You know, these sorts of things kind of just continue. Yeah. Um, but yeah, to not make it even like fun, a fun hang, it's just kind of like, mm, I don't know, a failure yeah. of the show in general. After Bridgerton, uh, Rhymes actually did an extension with Netflix, add another five years to her deal. Um, and Bridgerton has actually been renewed for season four. Season two is uh, coming up soon. So we're going to get plenty more of Rhymes on Netflix. And it sounds like Netflix with this deal is also trying to like expand beyond the traditional like we make shows and you subscribe and we give them to you kind of thing they're like want to do more live events and like real life things around their properties and rhymes might be involved in that so keep an eye on that i suppose but yeah inventing anna it's uh, it's it's tough to recommend it's really just just disappointing given how uh compelling the story is i've, I've read the new york story it's, it's it's very interesting just to read about like the mechanics of this kind of very specific yet peculiar grift, but the show just doesn't make any of it interesting, unfortunately. Well, let's stay on Netflix and go from inventing Anna to a show, another show we didn't really like very much, at least for the first season, Space Force. Um, you know, and I'd say Space Force is not only a very forgettable show and trying to like remember the beats watching the first couple episodes. I was like, Oh yeah, that happened. Oh yeah. Lisa Kudrow is the wife in prison in this, like those sorts of things. Like right. I had no memory of, um, but the show just wasn't funny. I mean, exactly. for a, a comedy show to basically uh, have the batting average that this did in terms of jokes, it was pretty sad, especially with the talent, you know, obviously Steve Carell, uh, potentially the most famous sitcom mm -hmm. character of the last 20 years with Michael Scott, but even like, uh, ben Schwartz, Jimmy O. Yang, like there, yeah. there's talent here for the last. Just wasn't hitting for whatever reason. We we both got to watch at least the premiere of season two. I got through episodes. You got through one. Did you feel like that trend continued for Space Force in its second season? I mean, again, only saw one episode, but I mean, overall, yes. I think just the the general issue with Space Force, like you said, it's a workplace comedy that isn't very funny. And even if we remove ourselves from, I think, the initial disappointment, which was learning that, like, the show Space Force isn't actually going to be a satire about, like, the creation of the Space Force under the Trump administration. If we recall, that's how the show got invented. Netflix was like, let's make a show about this as soon as possible. And Greg Daniels was like, cool, let's do it. And that's what they did. But it doesn't actually, like, have any kind of comment about stuff. 
which is fine. It doesn't need to be like that, even if there's like consistent references to like real life figures. Like um, Schwartz is Scaramucci, his name. You know, you can't escape it with his name in the show, but it doesn't go that far. So it's just going to be a workplace comedy, which should be familiar to fans of Steve Carell, like you said. But it's just not, not witty, not laugh out loud raunchiness like Danny McBride stuff. Like it, it's not much of anything to me. And I like a lot of this cast a lot. Like I'm really happy to see Jimmy O Yang just doing something else. Cool, great. Uh, Diana Silver's definitely someone to watch for sure. But like, it's just not fun. And I think a lot of the stuff with with Naird in season one, he was just such an unlikable protagonist that it's going to take a lot for season two. Do I think change minds? I don't know. Like, but like if, if the show is just funnier, like it would forgive a lot of sins. Totally. Um, I, I agree that the show has not uh, leveled up its funniness, but I do think where the show has decided to try to go is more so in the like heartfelt direction. You know, you yeah. kind of get in last. Yeah. In, in the first episode, you get, um, uh, them basically looking at the events of the finale of the second or of the, the first season. And uh, at the end, you kind of get nared getting off the hook for whatever reason. And that it's kind of shown that everybody on his team just loves him, thinks he's a great guy, really rides for him. And I feel like the show didn't really have as much of that, like heartfelt stuff in the first season. And so kind of going back and trying to see like, why would they have kind of made this, turn in the second season i think one it makes a lot of sense if you're if you're batting average with the jokes isn't great to try to at least make it something that feels good for people to sit down and watch give them something to latch on to and then the first episode was written by steve carell so i think that makes sense i think he's kind of known for uh having that like heartfelt uh perspective with some of the episodes he worked on with the, in the office but also, it's the whole season, the seven episodes, are directed by Ken Quapis, who was the director of tra Travel uh, Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, mm -hmm. um, you know, movies like that, uh, a couple of, of, of rom-coms. So I think that, like, heartfelt goodness is probably going to be something that continues um, just based on the, the teaming up of the direction. I haven't gotten to, to episode three yet. Um, Jimmy O. Yang wrote that one. So I'm interested to see how that, like where that goes. You know, I, I, I don't know if Jimmy O. Yang was a big part of the, the writing on uh, Silicon Valley, but I, I hope that this might, uh, maybe the jokes will level up with Jimmy O. Yang behind the helm. Who knows? Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, honestly, seven episode season, half hour show. It's only three and a half hours for the whole season. Even though I'm like not super into it, I'm kind of like weirdly compelled just to like see it through and just because I like some of the people involved. So yeah. I might end up finishing it. Not sure. I, I do feel like in, in the second episode, there's a storyline with um, Tawny Newsom's character, Major Angela uh, Ali. Um, and I, I think there, there's some meat on the bone there, not necessarily even in like the funny terms, but just kind of in like a, an interesting storyline to the season terms and like exploring potentially like, um, like hero, hero worship and how people, uh, kind of take these, these astronauts and like elevate their status to being something more than just people. Uh, just I thought that was really interesting. Also, her relationship with Jimmy O. Yang's character, I, I find somewhat funny to like see them like 
in the second episode talk about how Jimmy Yang has no game, doesn't even understand texting and like exploring that. So there's there's some pieces that I'm like, hmm, maybe there's something there. It also seems like Noah Emmerich is probably going to be like a big bad for this season. And um, I, I enjoyed him on the Americans, which I will finish one day. Um, so it's, it's always <laughs> nice, always it's nice to see Noah Emmerich uh, getting a, some shine. But yeah, Space Force, not very funny, but maybe more wholesome. I'll take it. Anyways, let's uh, let's switch gears. Let's go over to Amazon now, where Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is here for season four. Maisel feels like it's like like a not nostalgia pod staple. We've been talking about this show almost throughout the course of our our podcast at this point. Um, and season four, man, uh, see, uh, I can't remember a season where. I really liked it because I think I really liked season three and coming into season four, I was like, how is she in this situation? And then all the stuff with shy Baldwin kind of comes up I'm like, Oh, yeah. right. That was last season. Surly Kate Brown. Yeah. Some good December stuff 2019 was when season three came out. You'd be <laughs> forgiven for not remembering everything. Obviously huge COVID delays associated yes. with season four coming to us. But he, I think with nice change for the first time, Amazon is releasing this show two episodes at a time each week as opposed to doing a full season binge. I think that kind of reprieve from the rhythms of the Sherman Palladino dialogue is a nice decision. Uh, but we'll obviously the merit of the actual season will still dictate, you know, how people feel about it. But I, I like that change for sure. Um, but yeah, you know, coming into season four and watching these first two episodes, I was kind of like, huh, I was feeling more like down on the show than I think perhaps I ever have. And I wonder how much of that's the delay and how much of that is just where season four takes us in the beginning, which definitely feels like a, a spinning of wheels in a certain sense from a plot perspective. Yeah, I finished the, the first two episodes and I looked over at my, my fiance and I was like, that was pretty good. Like, and that that's just not where Maisel used to be. Like Maisel used to be something where, you know, you finish an episode and you kind of want to just get to the next one. There was probably like three or four moments in it that really like captured you. And you're like, wow, the energy from that was great. And I, and I actually think the way that Midge's career on the show is kind of going is kind of how the show is also going. You kind of feel like it's kind of stuck in place, kind of hitting the same beats over and over again. Oh, Midge doesn't want to do like this kind of thing. So she's going to do it her way. And I, I, I get it. And I appreciate that about the character being like a running through line of, of her life. Um but it does feel a little bit like we're getting some some same storylines coming back up. Um, I do have to say, I thought they had a very classic Maisel moment that really worked for me in terms of the the Ferris wheel in the first episode. <laughs> yeah. Just fantastic, like banter back and forth with the family, with uh, right. uh, with Joel's family and her family together. So I, I really liked yeah. that. But I didn't feel like there was a ton of other like really like high level moments in these first two episodes for me. I'd say for me right now, a lot of it had just on, I think just Midge is not super likable right now. Like there's been a lot of like obviously quirks about the Midge Maisel character being this super privileged, you know, wealthy elite person who has a very specific uh, worldview. And that got challenged here and there in season three due to her touring with uh, Shy. But overall, like she doesn't have any like humility or uh, culpability about why she got fired by Shy Baldwin, you know, outing a gay man in a certain sense. 
during her set. You know, it's you know, it's just she she just has a sense of uh, infallibility about herself. When we know that's not actually the truth, yeah, uh, it's just kind of it's kind of tough sometimes. I feel like to be with with that, and like even some of the Susie stuff right now, it's like this whole big mess she's in is because she has a fucking gambling problem. It's another thing that it's not you know not not super sympathetic about this, you know. Uh, so I just kind of want to see some of these conflicts get resolved so we can get back, you know, get off the hamster wheel and get back towards like Midge trying to become like the true comic. Because I think a big part of season one and two was that like there was this huge push pull with Joel and is Midge just going to go back and be a housewife and stuff. And thankfully we've abandoned that, but now it's like her career is just stuck in the mud. So I, I, you know, they announced there's a fifth and final season coming after this season. Don't know how far we'll end up going with that kind of stuff, but I would just like some kind of change. But I, I mean, the show is probably just gonna do what it's been doing. It's hard to ask something to completely change at this point. Um, I think the the best part about this premiere for me was, oh, I, I like like the Coney Island stuff that you did. I think the a- absolute funniest thing they did was the whole thing about the. Uh, birthday they changed the kid's birthday and the parents were totally cool with it i thought that was actually one of the funniest things they've ever done in terms of like laugh out loud humor i I thought that was fantastic oh yeah it didn't really line up with our schedules too well and then when she was like you didn't change my birthday did you and they were like no (laughs) she was like like, oh man that that was really great I, i think the one of the achievements of the show is taking uh Joel Maisel played by Michael Zegan mm-hmm. and making him a character that I actually like enjoy seeing on screen because for the first like season or two I did not enjoy his oh, presence yeah. very much and I, I think he's at least like a, a character that I'm like I don't I don't dis- dislike him on screen I, I think he's like a nice presence his relationship with with Midge is always I, I don't know if I want the back and forth of it but I like that he's kind of like the supportive husband from mm. afar at this point um right. and of course the the tony shalhoub rachel brosnahan connection is just dynamite like the the final scene of the second episode where they're sitting on the floor together and tony shalhoub lost he got his first paycheck for writing that review i thought that was just a really nice moment i was like oh, the show it still has that heart to it i think it can get back to where it was before but still, yeah. like you said had to fix some of these uh these plot problems yeah i've really never liked joel when you know, during like season two, he definitely felt like completely irrelevant. And I'm not, I'm not definitely not investing him as like a core B plot, but I do think they've at least found a way for him to settle in and be some kind of presence, at least on the mid side of things. I think when they get away from that and it's like Joel doing Joel things first, it's where I'm a little uh, less interested, even though perhaps there's more potential with the May uh, Chinatown stuff, TBD, I guess. But yeah, it's interesting to see, uh, you know, more tepid reception to uh, Maisel return. But uh, that can happen to a show sometimes, you know, it's a, it can run scores, I guess. So we'll see how uh, season four progresses and if we have major, you know, change in thought. But uh, I feel like it still has a pretty high floor as a series, even if maybe you're not seeing the, the ceiling reached anymore. I was gonna say, I still think uh, you know when you get a, a strong Midge uh, performance on on stage, that that can fix a lot of problems for this show in an episode. So, uh, I'm still in on Maisel. You're still in on Maisel. We'll be talking about it when the season wraps up. And the season that just wrapped up was Peacemaker. 
on HBO. DC Comics. Uh, man, I have to say, we've been talking about DC versus Marvel for some time. It's, the the conversation has definitely moved further off. I feel like DC's been on quite the run recently with some of the properties that they've had mm-hmm. out. And Peacemaker might be my favorite of of all the stuff. I mean, that's obviously I think Suicide Squad and Peacemaker one two for me. Um, absolute hits. James Gunn uh, just has such a, a grip on what he wants to say with these characters and mm. the the tone of the show. And I just really enjoyed the, this episode of television. It was renewed for a second season, so I'm looking forward to that. How did you feel about Peacemaker? Yeah, I liked it a lot. Uh, it has personality and perspective and a committed lead performance from John Cena. It just it knows what it is and it's really confident. And I just really respect that. I really enjoy this tone and the fact that DC can give you a wide range of stuff. I really appreciate to some people. They're just very disappointed in like the lack of cohesion when you compare it to something so planned, like the MCU really don't care about that too much. I just like the stuff to be good that we do get. And I think Peacemaker is like undeniably like very successful, and just like the Suicide Squad from Gunn was very successful. Um, I, you know, I didn't really see the need for this show to come out as a spinoff of the, the film, but uh, obviously pleasantly surprised to, to get what we got. And uh, I think it's just it's just really bold, and it's just funny to compare something like Hawkeye, which feels just so inert, to something like <laughs> Peacemaker. Which just feels so alive, you know. Yeah, that that that's a great comparison point, I think, because when we talked about Hawkeye, we were just like, "Yeah, this is like the most Marvel property ever. It's safe. It's right down the middle, and it introduces the next wave of characters just to kind of keep you on the line, right?" right. Uh, th- this took a lot of chances. I thought this went in so many directions. I mean, the final episode or final two episodes end up being like a, a culmination of a Nazi storyline yeah. <laughs> and a Nazi superhero and an alien invasion storyline. And this, you know, like Jingo ask uh, superhero who killed Colonel Rick flag. Yeah. Fucking Joel Kinnaman getting the unceremonial. Oh, I guess he got a pretty good <laughs> goodbye in it. It was, it was worthy. Um, Peacemaker. But, but a joke. <laughs> but coming all the way around. Also, I, I actually real, real quick, I did appreciate that we got a flashback to that. Like that, I thought that was nice. But mm-hmm. and this this uh, antihero at the middle of it coming all the way around, really like yes. finding himself, and just was so well written. Uh, the show had a lot of really like tender moments to it, which you know, especially in the first couple of episodes, I was like. Oh man, I don't know. Like big old doofus. Like we're we're gonna get just like a lot of laughs and a lot of like clowning on him. But it, I think it actually turned it around, and I just was really impressed with that. I I was laughing a lot, and I I have to say I, I know I bring her up sometimes when I talk about some of the dumb reality shows we watch. Uh, my fiance hates superhero movies, and she really liked the series. Like wow. she ended up watching it with me, and she thought it was just really funny and really well done. So I was like, "That that's a hit right there." If they can suck in people who don't even like superhero shows with this tone, yeah. that's that's saying something. So, uh, I, give me some of the highs of the season for you. What were your favorite moments? Yeah, I think just generally, like finding a way to have the peacemaker character be redeemed in a certain sense. 
it's not like they're erasing the fact that he's dumb mm-hmm. and misinformed and has a very questionable past and connections and all that. And they don't shy away from that at all, but they do find a way to make place for him kind of earning his way back in through his heart. And I, I really, really like that. I think the the greater like supporting cast of, of the crew, the Operation Butterfly crew, like it all kind of builds to that in I think a really nice way. Um, yeah, in terms of like favorite moments, I mean, there's a lot. I yeah. think um, a lot of the stuff with Vigilante, I really enjoyed because that's another like kind of awesome creation for this yeah. series in terms of like this like sociopathic, equally uh, problematic and deranged person on Peacemaker's level in this Vigilante character and finding another way to still make that guy uh, enjoyable and someone you're rooting for even if they never run away from his flaws. Um, I just give James Gunn a lot of credit uh, with kind of like the conception of a lot of this stuff here. Um, I really liked a lot of the stuff with like the butterflies once that like really kind of explodes and you understand like the actual like roots of this alien invasion. And once they take over the uh, the police officers and that kind of, that, oh, yeah. that tide kind of turns, I liked a lot of that stuff. And um, I mean, the, the whole finale, I think is pretty, pretty fun from an action uh, standpoint but also pretty satisfying in terms of where the plot goes oh it's I, I think this is completely satisfying especially you know you get him killing his dad i thought that was a incredibly satisfying yes. moment you get the eagerly hug an, an amazingly satisfying moment and also a, a great joke in the the final episode when uh waller's daughter uh leota tells the group about it and they're all like, you didn't see that as a reason to run from this. You saw that as a reason <laughs> to come back and help. Like, and just like, uh, really, I, I thought, well, well done. And yeah, I, I, I think Vigilante as uh, Freddie Stroma, the, the actor who plays him, was just uh, by far the the Dion Waiters of the season. Every scene he was in just brought something ridiculous. And having this like almost, uh, almost like past peacemakers ridiculousness kind of like in his face and like causing him sometimes to have to face his own idiocy and sometimes like totally buying into it i thought was a really nice like push and pull um and yeah i i actually felt like one of the things i was most uh i don't know satisfied with and was the relationship with uh econ economos uh i don't know why i can say that yes yeah um played by steve uh aggie um but just like they're the I don't know him bullying him at the beginning of the season and finding that common ground and coming together as a team and, and the way the team all comes together just I don't know really really like fun really well done and the jokes along the way I thought were great they they pulled very few punches I felt which I really appreciated yeah yeah Gunn spoke about how if I'm gonna like tear down and say all these questionable things about like real life uh you know figures and politics and culture and stuff I got to do it to DC characters as well. And I was like, you know what? That actually makes a lot of sense. Like, why wouldn't Peacemaker say these things about Batman and Aquaman, Green Arrow, etc.? And it, it all is uh, pretty satisfying hearing him, like, rail on why he thinks Batman is a big old pussy and, like, honestly presenting a very logical uh, case for why Batman's an idiot for not killing his enemies. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I, I know. When it. he said that, I was like, oh. That's actually really well thought out. Um, yeah, I really loved at the very end when the Justice Justice League shows up and he just like, right. curses them out. 
Right. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for showing up, you fucking dicks. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, to actually get Ezra Miller and Momoa showing up to cameo in this, too. Pretty cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, it's, it's, it's just... I'm just really, really pleased with the series because I, I think part of it's a lot of people didn't have expectations for this. Again, not a spinoff anyone was like clamoring for, but I think it just really, it really comes together in a nice way and definitely a nice change from how we've heard the the Batman spinoff about the Gotham PD has been going, which has been a very fraught development from what we understand. Peacemaker, you know, I think it's really just ends up James Gunn. He just has a clear vision about stuff and you just let that man work and he can uh, deliver on that. And we definitely yeah. got that with the Suicide Squad. We've gotten that for the most part with the Guardians films. So uh, that's cool. And I said it with the premiere, but I think this hats off the Cena for being so oh, committed yeah. to the performance and not being afraid to make a fool of himself. I made the comparison before, but I wish Dwayne The Rock Johnson would take mm-hmm. this kind of approach to some of his roles. Whereas Cena is more willing to do something like this, like uh, think about his performance in the comedy blockers from a few years ago, same kind of thing. Like Cena is game. And I really like that about him. Yeah. John, John Cena was just absolutely fantastic in this. I, I don't know how we got through the, this whole review and mentioned, mentioned him at the end, but yeah, just an absolute home run for him. And but I think you said it best, uh, the way he approached this character and was able to laugh at himself. And it was uh, really impressive. So Looking forward to season two. Uh, also, strangely, like very much looking forward to all the stuff DC is putting out. All those people that bought the DC stock when it was at, and held on when it's at its lowest, like they're they're fucking diamond hands right now, baby. Good, good yeah, I mean, big big twenty twenty two coming for DC. The Batman from yes. Reeves, obviously right around the corner. Not three hours. Anything here, but still very exciting. I've been avoiding the trailers after I saw the first one. I'm like, don't I don't need to see a second more. Yep. I'm in. But from the DCEU side of things, this year we get Black Adam, The Flash, and Aquaman 2. Uh, Black Adam and The Flash definitely have been a long time coming. <laughs> and, yeah. and Aquaman 1 was so successful, I'm sure DC is very excited to finally have the sequel here. So um, all these films following uh, the Snyder Cut, which was largely successful. So DC, you know, it's uh, it might not be what everyone wants them to do, but they seem to be... Uh, they seem to be doing, doing uh, for the most part, good work. And uh, the Batgirl film with Leslie Grace is coming up, too, on HBO Max. So overall, DC, uh, I have positive things to say. Absolutely. Uh, Dave, I wonder if you have positive things to say about the newest co- uh, video game movie, Uncharted, which uh, hit theaters this weekend. Tom Very Holland. Sp- not Peter Parker in this. Uh, and, you know, our our favorite actor to, I guess, clown on in recent years, uh, Mark Wahlberg, the, yeah. the two headliners here. Um, boy, what I, mean, I, I guess just like I'll, I'll pass you the rock first because I've never played the Uncharted series. So though, basically what I know of it, it's like a in, adventure Indiana Jones type series uh, and very popular. Um, and so did you feel like this? Uh, do you feel like, like this lived up to the the classic comic or video game turned into movie trope of it's going to be bad or was it serviceable? Because I, I don't know if I would say that this was really good, but maybe not terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I it's not really good. 
it has a lot of, I think, kind of obvious uh, filmmaking flaws. However, it's not utter dog shit either. It, I, I was, for the most part, pretty entertained. That being said, I have a very limited experience with the Uncharted series, long-running PlayStation series. Um, so I'm not the best person to ask uh, in terms of the adaptation side of things. However, it's not like trying to be like a hard adaptation anyway, because when you cast Tom Holland as Nathan Drake, you are doing a clear switch from how Drake is portrayed in the games. Nathan Drake is a lot older in the games and Tom He's Holland more like Wahlberg. Right. And, and Tom Holland is just precocious still. He's a, mm-hmm. he, he comes across as very young. Yeah, I know he's in his early 20s, but he still comes across as a very young man. So it, that's just not the Drake that I think people think about. Um, you know, there was the fan clamoring for someone like Nathan Fillion to play Drake for years. Like, that, that's a far cry from how, what you get from Tom Holland. And honestly, like, the Sully character also comes across as a lot older than what you get from someone like Mark Wahlberg. So it's it just kind of a different spin and truly, like, the origin, the Drake origin. But, like, they're going to have greenlit a second Uncharted movie because this has had a very successful start at the box office, which is a nice sign. But Tom Hall is not going to like suddenly come across as old when they make Uncharted 2. So it's just not a perfect analog. But I, I had a decent time in terms of like, you know, ripping off more familiar and better execute on stuff like Indiana Jones and like even like the Dan Brown, like Angels and Demons, Da Vinci Code kind of stuff. Like exactly. I, I actually like enjoyed all that stuff, even if I've seen all of this before. So, uh, yeah, I, I didn't hate it. Yeah. You, you, I mean, you hit the nail on the head for where my mind went with this is it's Indiana Jones mixed with uh, the Da Vinci code, but I, I thought it was still like fun. Um, you know, I, I do, just do not think Mark Wahlberg's a very good actor at this point in his career. Uh, I, I find pretty much everything he does to feel like very mailed in in one note. And he's just always Mark Wahlberg at this point. So I felt like a lot of the, a lot of the scenes with him, I just was left wanting a little bit more, but I felt like, like holland was really trying in this you know i felt yeah. like he was really like trying to put a good performance forward and trying to like act a little older you know for for what you're saying he it seems like he was trying to like be more like suave and adult and you know seeing him in no way home just a few uh weeks ago where he's playing a 17 or you know very young 18 year old it's it's kind of weird to like see and, and not just be like oh you're you're a kid like you are really a kid um but uh, i thought uh, you know a couple of the scenes were really uh really like fun you know I, I think about the obviously the plane scene is probably the one people are going to talk about where they're falling out of the plane he's you know crawling up the cargo as it's falling out right. um but legolas shit yeah just absolutely ridiculous but i really liked the when they uh when they get to like chile or something like that no barcelona when they get to barcelona mm-hmm. and they uh are going through like like the club and stuff like that looking for the the entrance and where the the, the helen and heaven uh, keys type of yes. thing i thought mm-hmm. that was a really fun scene and it's it was enjoyable so i'll I'll take it yeah i um along those lines i thought chloe was a nice part of the movie i liked her interplay with holland even if like this entire film kind of runs away from the sexual chemistry like it's like it's not interested in any of that stuff you know no. i saw a review note that they don't actually spend uh, any frames in the bed together when they're sharing the room, they're actually never in bed at the same time. It's like, wow. It's like, 
I mean, shit, like sell Tom Holland, man. People love this guy. <laughs> you know, I don't I, know. I, I actually think the stuff with uh, Braddock and uh, Sullivan were much yes. more uh, sexual, but I guess because they're older, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with, with you on Chloe. I thought she was nice. And, you know, in some of the Uncharted games, Chloe apparently has been a protagonist. I wonder if maybe they would yes. ever Lost kind of set that up. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'd be open to it for sure. Um, I think it's actually kind of interesting the uh like the the treasure they thought of like magellan's gold which you know for the most part is fictional but like i i felt like the way they kind of set up this quest what was was kind of cool and you have you have this this framework for more films with uh drake and sully and then chloe is she an ally is she an enemy i feel like you have all that set up well for a future film so just kind of come up with a new thing and, and, and go for it. Obviously, there's stuff to mine from the games in terms of plot. So just do that kind of thing. I'm not that different from making another Tomb Raider movie with Vikander, right. which they're supposedly still doing with Misha Green. Um, yeah, I think I think my favorite thing was kind of early on when they're doing the Heaven and Hell stuff, like you said, in Spain. I thought that was the most cool, even if I got to say, like, the proximity of like all these like treasures and like gates and stuff to like the civilization like it's like right it's like right there it's like two walls away from like where people are it's like people would have found this shit by now that's all yeah. i'll say you know but uh willing to uh you know throw some logic out the window just like uh magellan's ship totally would have like crumbled to pieces as soon as they tried to yep. fly it around like that however still <laughs> kind of enjoyed it i think if there's one thing i'd like to see in the future it's maybe holland kind of switching up his energy and action scenes because when he's like fighting everyone on the ship which uh, they're they're fine enough scenes but like he still kind of has that spider-man like personality uh, going on when he's yeah. fighting like kind of like, like the banter with his enemies as he's taking someone's ass like shit like that it's mm -hmm. like a little too familiar for me like i didn't like you know if you could try and find a way to like, hone in on this like drake characterization and make it a little different uh, yeah, I think that would help just because people will think about Spider-Man when they see Tom Holland, whether it's fair or not. Yeah, and for better or for worse, um, because he is a uh, smaller person, a smaller man, uh, there, there's always going to be the uh, the joke. Uh, you know, he's facing a huge guy and just right. is like, oh, da, 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 like you know, talking shit to him and trying to distract him and get like a sucker punch in. Like, ah, I don't know. Yeah. It, it's just kind of who he is at this point, but I, I, I hope he kind of finds a couple more courts play in the future. But overall, Uncharted, um, I, I'd say that this is a success for them. I mean, it did decently at the box office. Oh, yeah. uh, internationally, $139 million. Take that for an opening weekend. Yeah, for, uh, for sure. Um, I mean, the box office between uh, Uncharted and Spider-Man, it's all Tom Holland right now until the Batman comes out. But uh yeah, this is getting a China release as well, so I think this will be pretty successful. And the first official like release for the PlayStation Studios uh, brand. And the, we got word that the Last of Us series isn't coming to HBO until next year. So yeah, a bit bit of a wait for that. But um, the other Naughty Dog game, Uncharted, you know, it could have been way worse, honestly, for something that's they've been trying to bring to the screen for such a long time. So absolutely, pleasantly surprised with it. Well, Dave, let's finish it up with a foreign film, Norwegian film, The Worst Person in the World. 
Um, Verdens, Verste, Minesk. I definitely butchered that, but um, uh, you know, the, the reason we really want to check this out, not only has it gotten really good reviews, but it's being uh, nominated at the Academy Awards for uh, Best International Feature Film. Uh, a lot of buzz around this movie. Uh, also nominated for original screenplay. Very exciting as well. Two Absolutely. And uh, premiered at Khan in 2021. Uh, Renate Rensve, uh, who is the uh, lead actress, with one for best actress in this, and it was uh, yeah. nominated for Palme d'Or. So a lot of a lot of acclaim for this movie already. How did you like the worst person in the world? So I love the worst person in the world. I think it's brilliant movies, really great. Um, and that lead performance by Renate Rensve. Oh boy, uh, my my apologies to <laughs> Renate. That was disrespectful. She's really great. Yeah, she's, a lot, she's... I go online. Everyone's saying it. She looks like Dakota Johnson. We got it. It's true. She does. But she's she's tremendous in yeah. this movie. Carries the fucking thing, obviously. However, that Oscars screenplay nomination is justly earned as well because that screenplay, that script is very specific, very intentional. Makes a big deal out of having a twelve chapter structure with a prologue and epilogue on top of that. There's a very like specific frame of storytelling here. Narration comes in and out, stuff like that, right? But I, I mean, I for someone I have not seen Joachim Trier's, uh, Trier's other films, the first two in this loose Oslo trilogy. I haven't seen his other movies. Um, but just coming into this pretty much blind, just knowing people liked it a lot, uh, I was really impressed. And I think it, it's just a really deeply affecting, compelling movie with excellent acting. It's not predictable. Um, you know, I think that that early setup, it's like, oh, maybe, maybe I do know what's happening here. There's some similarities to some bombback stuff. You know, I saw people call this Norwegian Francis Ha, for example. Hmm. But where it goes from there, once you get the initial setup of the like successful uh, or the, the pretty person who doesn't know what you want, like, once you get past that initial setup, you really don't know what's coming next. And I think it's just really, really affecting movie. So I liked it a lot. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I thought that this was uh, very well done. I thought very cleverly uh, written, which I, I agree. I think the nomination for screenplay makes a ton of sense and very worthy. Um, and I, I agree. I Where I got to at the end of the movie was nowhere near where I thought I was going to be, about even halfway through the movie. Um, and just kind of how it left me like ruminating on uh modern day romance modern day partnership um you know themes of of love and loss which is like the most broad thing to kind of put up there but i think more so like how as you age what your your wants and needs and desires in a relationship all kind of change um but still certain aspects of it can be um timeless or in, enduring and so just a, there's a lot to dig into um on the meta level and uh, I gotta say, there were some moments of just like pure, I, I thought, like creative genius in this. You know, there we'll we'll probably get to some of those moments, but there's some some choices in the the directing that I thought were just fantastic. And I think the one that probably sticks out sticks out to me the most is um, in the bad timing, chapter five, when her and um, uh, 
no not ivan who's the first one um uh, access askel yeah um when they when they break up uh but before she approaches him she flicks the light on yeah everything is frozen except for her running to ivan and their their date and their hookup and then it comes all the way back um i just thought that was absolutely uh mesmerizing mm-hmm. cap and captivating just brilliant filmmaking and just totally stuck out in my mind is one of the best scenes of the year yeah you, you don't see it coming as well mm-hmm. but uh I, I just appreciate how like so each chapter is kind of different like at one point you get the one after that one you get that chapter with uh ivan and it's like his whole like backstory to that point with his previous partner and stuff and it's like, really short but it covers a huge stretch of time very different from like that chapter earlier in the film where askel and julie talk about the story she wrote about yeah. oral sex which is this very brief intermittent anecdote you know so like there, there's such a range in like what you're gonna get uh chapter to chapter i think that's really cool um and yeah by, by the end it's like it's a fucking devastating film but contrast that with the early part of the movie where there's like a lot of like really funny shit happening so uh I thought it was just really unique. And um, Anders Danielson Lee, who played Askel, he was really impressive. Uh, we actually saw him recently in Bergman Island, which we talked about. And he's worked with uh, Joachim Trier in his other movies. I thought uh, Lee was, I think, really good as Askel, especially towards the end, once the stuff happens with the, the cancer and you have that reconciliation. I thought that whole scene was excellent. It's really good acting, really good writing. And before that, like, like get the super cringe, right? Where Julie watches him like basically melt down on the radio show, talking about his work, uh, yep. his his comic, you know, his uh, off color stuff. Uh, there's just a lot of a lot of like thematic stuff going on, and using Julie as like our like eyes into all this different stuff. Someone who doesn't have her life all figured out, you know. I think it's just. I think it's a really relatable thing how the worst person in the world talks about like purpose and direction in life and connection with people and even like specific things like age gap and relationship and stuff like it, it, it just tackles a whole bunch of stuff over the course of a still pretty, uh, you know, easy to follow through line of this person's life. So, yeah, yeah, there's a lot going on. It's great. Yeah. One of my favorite um chapters was chapter two cheating um where julie and uh ivan meet um and it really reminded me of like an episode of easy from netflix almost Ah, you know and just that like that will they won't they of it but like the the pure intimacy and connection that they each felt i mean there was obviously like a really strong spark between the two actors and um, I, I loved that. And then probably one of my other favorite chapters, you know, to highlight the, um, the duplicity of this movie is one of the last ones. Um, uh, sorry, chapter, is it chapter 11 or 12? I can't remember where Axel is, um, you know, really about to die, not doing well because of his pancreatic cancer. Right. Um, and just the, the conversation that they have in the car as he's just like, I, I just want to go live in my flat. I want to live in my flat with you. And just that's such a brutal and gutting moment. But 
it feels so real. And I, I want to say, I mean, yeah. I chapter think 12. Uh, chapter 12, thank you. Uh, everything comes to an end. Um, I thought, uh, Anders, uh, Danielson, uh, lie as Axel was really brilliant as well to play the, the multiple sides of that character, the way he did just, mm. um, really brilliant acting. Yeah. I mean, even early on chapter 10, where, uh, Julian Ivan have that like fight. It's not really a fight. It's like Julie just like like really like like meanly like like belittles him and is like super personal and like in the way they portray that like the, the Ivan response. It's not like they go into like a marriage story like screaming match. You know, it's not what happens. He's just like that really hurt me, and I don't know what to do now. Like it just a lot of stuff just comes across as like super real and super instructive and like uh just thoughtful about like how how stuff would happen and you know meanwhile you still get something a bit more uh expressive and psychedelic with a literal mushroom scene you know <laughs> getting getting high on uh shrooms so yeah i for a movie that like having no expectations going in just expecting it to be good uh it still really really wowed me really surprised me uh and really happy to see it get some recognition at the Oscars beyond just the the expected international film nom. Like to also get a screenplay recognition for this, it's really nice to see. You know, just like Drive My Car getting a Best Picture nomination is like really awesome. Like the Film Academy is more global than it's ever been, and it's really nice to see movies like this, Worst Person in the World, getting platformed, getting uh, marketed basically yeah. to people that otherwise would not give something like this a chance because uh, you certainly will not be disappointed when you do give it a chance. Completely agree. Um, yeah. Shout out to uh, Joaquin Trier, who is yeah. the director and one of the co-writers with the, on this with Eskil Vote. Um, just brilliant and uh, really glad that we watched it. W- what would you say the uh, chances are of it taking home um, the international film Oscar? So I'd say that's zero because it's going to lose to Drive My Car, which yeah. got Best Picture nomination. Uh, screenplay, it's uh, up for original screenplay. So that one's probably more up in the air than, you know, adapted. Power of the Dog's going to win. So um, you never know. There, there's always a wild card nature to the screenplay categories. So don't completely rule it out. 2021 or 2022 movie for you? Uh, 2021 film for me definitely in the top 10 definitely in the top five whoa i did rank it i put this at number four green knight drive my car dune and the worst person in the world i haven't updated my rankings it'd probably be somewhere in the top 10 for me though really really well done check it out when you can um definitely worth your time all right we're gonna wrap up there dave what do we got for next week yeah, next week, end of Euphoria season two, end of Righteous Gemstone season two, the start of the fourth and final season of Killing Eve, a season we're so excited about and have very high expectations for. Oh, uh, God, man. I don't know how they're going to land the plane, but they're going to try. They're going to try. <laughs> and uh, also uh, the Peter Dinklage would-be Oscar oh, film. Cyrano. Cyrano is finally coming out. All right. And... You know, I, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing it because I actually don't mind the trailer. So it uh, it's fucking almost March by the time they put the fucking thing out. But uh, 
Yeah, well, it's finally here. So we'll see what's up. We'll be talking about all that and more. Subscribe at youtube.com slash nostalgia pod. Go to nostalgia on Spotify. Give us a five star reading review. We'll catch you next week. Yeah.